Good morning, and thanks for your flexibility with a little tweaked start time. Uh, our next case is State versus Elder, and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court. My name is Benjamin Zellinger, and I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. This appeal before you is about a home invasion and rape of an 80-year-old victim and when those crimes truly ended. The Court of Appeals in this matter found that there was not substantial evidence that the kidnapping in this case was for the purpose of facilitating that rape. And they went on to find that a felony that is the alleged purpose of a kidnapping must occur after the kidnapping, a finding that contradicts repeated holdings of this court. This is not the first time this issue has been presented to this court, and this court has previously ruled that the crime, that the crime was complete does not mean that it was completed. I'd like to address three things with the court this morning. Um, firstly, this question of whether, the, whether a defendant can facilitate a crime after the majority of the actus reus is done, and the answer that can be found in this court's precedent upon which the state relies. Second, I'd like to talk about the fact that there is no variance in this case. And lastly, I'd like to address the defendant's uh, continuous transaction doctrine. But to start with, um, obviously, as the court is aware, um, this case, sort of the crux of this case, is about the third element of kidnapping, that the defendant confined, restrained, or removed a person for the purpose of facilitating the defendant's commission of committing first-degree rape. Um, and I'd urge the court not to focus on the potential overlap between the potential purposes for kidnapping. Uh, North Carolina General Statute 14-39 lists, I believe, eight or 10 purposes for which a kidnapping can occur. And under 1439A2, it reads that it, the, the purpose could be for facilitating the commission of any fel felony or facilitating flight of any person following the commission of a felony. And so while there is evidence, and the defendant argues in his brief, that the evidence in this case for the second kidnapping might have constituted evidence of facilitating flight, here it, the question before the court is whether, the, whether there was substantial evidence that the evidence in this case showed that the purpose of the kidnapping was to facilitate the rape. And I would argue to this court that there is clear evidence of that, as found by the dissent below, that... Um, the second restraint in this case after the rape prevented the victim from calling for help, from getting medical attention, or from fleeing from the defendant. And there's a distinction there. There's one flight really pertains to the defendant fleeing the crime, whether the defendant would be caught. But in this instance, it prevented the victim from fleeing the defendant, and thus prolonged her pain and um, the effects of the, the crime. And so, and looking at the the precedent of this court, um, there's a number of cases that are relevant, and the first one that I would point to is State v. Hall, which um, comes from um, 1982. And in that case, the court evaluated essentially this exact question of whether the purposes in 14-39 are mutually exclusive. And, and this court found in that case that a single kidnapping may be for the dual purposes of using the victim as a hostage or a shield or for facilitating flight, or for the purposes of facilitating the commission of a felony and doing seriously bodily harm to the victim. And the court went on to say that so long as the evidence proves the purpose charged in the indictment, 
The fact that it also shows that kidnapping was effectuated for another purpose enumerated in the statute is immaterial and may be disregarded. And the court goes on to say, so it is here. And, and I would argue to this court that the same thing exists in the facts before you, that while the, a rape happened in this case, there was a kidnapping before the rape, and then the rape happened of this 80-year-old woman, and then she's moved to a bedroom, or I'm sorry, to a closet and tells uh, the defendant that, that she can't breathe and the defendant moves her into a bedroom. And then he puts a, a mattress against the door and then starts a shower. And, and those, those actions by this defendant constitute a completely second kidnapping in this case. And the purpose of that second kidnapping was to facilitate the rape. That is, to get away with the rape, to eliminate evidence. The shower being turned on presumably is to destroy evidence that could be found on the defendant. Um, the barricading of the room is to prevent, prevent the victim from fleeing. How can we construe the second kidnapping as being the facilitation of a rape according to the indictment if the rape was over? I, I heard you say <clears throat> the things that happened pursuant to the victim saying that she couldn't breathe and it was upon her statement that then the defendant moved her to the other location. But it sounds like what the plain words would suggest that you have stated in terms of, you know, putting the mattress up against the door or the wall, um, turning on the shower, that would sound like those were matters that were after the rape and not therefore for the commission of, or to facilitate the commission of a rape. Yes, Justice Morgan, and, and the answer to that question, your question, is found in this court's precedent from Hall and Kyle. Um, this court addressed that and said that um, the fact that all the essential elements of a crime have arisen does not mean that the crime is no longer being committed. Um, for instance, and, and to get into the sort of gory details, in, in a rape, um, the, the elements of the rape occurred and were were done essentially the second that there was penetration of the victim. Um, but that by no means means that the rape is over. There was continued agony for the victim. Um, the defendant uh, tried to destroy evidence in this case, um, presumed by turning on the shower. Um, and so I would argue to the court that just because the elements have been met doesn't mean that the crime is over. And, and you don't have to take my word for that. This court has said that in Hall that the crime was complete does not mean that it was completed. Um, and that was echoed again by this court in State v. Kyle in 1993. In that case, a defendant broke into his estranged wife's house, um, shot her, and then kidnapped her, uh, drove towards Virginia, and then ended up um, killing her and depositing her body in a ditch. Um, and the same question was established there um, about whether, whether um, the kidnapping was for facilitating a crime that was complete. In that case, it was burglary, which, which conceivably could, could be, the elements would be met when the person walked in the door. Um, and this court went on to say that restraining the victim and her son in an apartment in this manner made the crime of burglary easier by enabling defendant to carry out his felonious intent. Um, and so that's guidance for this court that, um, that it's facilitation of the, the commission of the, the felony. That is, and facilitate, the dictionary definition basically is to make easier. And so after the fact, the defendant can do things to make the crime that the elements might have already occurred easier. And that is destroy evidence, um, prevent himself from being caught, um, and, and 
prolong the agony and terror of the victim. Um, and so to, to say that a crime ends the second that the elements have been met is inconsistent with this court's, um, with this court's precedent. To follow your theory then to its logical conclusion, theoretically, let's say that the defendant left the residence of the victim and while driving away found that, say, several miles away that there was some incriminating evidence that was on him, uh, would that still be the facilitation of the commission of a rape if he was still destroying evidence miles away from the residence? I, I would argue absolutely that would be. Um, that, that the reason that he's doing that is to facilitate the crime, the commission of the crime. And, and so the question before this court is, is a crime solely the elements being met or is it something more than that? And I think in that instance, as the defendant's fleeing um, a crime that he committed, he's attempting to destroy evidence so that he can get away with the crime. That's part of the crime is the attempt to destroy evidence and get away with it. Um, is, just like- is, is that attempting to facilitate the crime or is that attempt to facilitate escaping from it by making it harder <coughs> for somebody to uh, find you liable later? And, and I, it's both. Uh, I think that there's significant overlap in the kidnapping statute, specifically in that prong between what constitutes flight and what constitutes uh, facilitating the commission of a crime. And, 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 and there's other parts of that statute where there's that overlap as well. Um, specifically the first prong is whether holding a person for ransom or as hostage or using a person as a shield, all those things can appear very similar. And so while there is overlap between those prongs, the sole question before this court should be whether the evidence in this case supported uh, the theory that the defendant was indicted under and charged and, and prosecuted under, which was whether there was facilitating the commission of the crime. At least in listening to your colloquy with the Justice Morgan, what I got out of your answer was in essence that the things that the state relies on for the purpose of showing the necessary intent here all had to do with making it harder to convict you later. If you interpret that type of thing as part of the commission of the crime, what's left for flight to avoid commission if, if the kinds of things that you're talking about are evidence of facilitating the commission of the crime? Sure. And again, I think there's significant overlap, but... Um, well, I mean, there's got to be... <coughs> I mean, there'd be no... You have to assume that the legislature put both prongs in there for some reason, that if, you, if, if one was totally subsumed within the other, you've effectively deprived the one that's subsumed of any independent meaning. Sure. There's six, um, six numbered re purposes... And it, within those six purposes, I think you can read in as many as ten different purposes. And so, so I think I, I that I haven't counted, but I'll take your word for it. So, and it it depends on how you count them. But but it is interesting that the facilitating the commission of a felony and facilitating flight are both within that one numeral. But if you drive away in a high speed, certainly that constitutes flight. Um, and and other mechanisms of trying to get away with your crime can constitute um, flight. Um, trying to this defendant actually ripped the phone out of the wall, which is another fact that sort of 
um, would support flight in that um, the victim wouldn't be able to call for help. But, um, but the, the difference here, and I think the important thing is that even if the evidence does constitute flight, it still constitutes evidence of commission of uh, a felony. Can you tell me something, just so I'll understand your argument, can you tell me something that would be flight that wouldn't be facilitate the commission of? I mean, I'm giving you free reign to exercise your imagination. I'm just trying to see what, you know, is, is there something, given your definition, to facilitate the commission that wouldn't also be flight? I, it, it's a, I, the cases that are, that are listed sort of in the, in the briefing have different facts that might support it. Um, I think that there are situations that would solely constitute flight. Um, if if uh, kidnapping was to, um, I don't, the, the, the thing that I go back to is, is if you're wearing like gloves, that could constitute facilitating just the commission of the crime and wouldn't constitute flight. Um, I think that some mechanism of, that only involved the defendant and didn't involve the victim would have, um, could constitute flight and wouldn't constitute uh, the facilitation of the, the crime. But I really think there's a tremendous amount of overlap there, and I think that that's okay. Um, and that's what this court has previously said in, in Hall, is that um, just because there is this overlap doesn't mean that that, that sort of eviscerates the, the meaning of the statute. A, a single cat kidnapping can be for the dual purposes of using the victim as a hostage or a shield or facilitating flight. Um, and the fact that, that, that there are these, these purposes are, it's immaterial is what the Hall Court tells us. Um, and so um, I think that the, the question of whether it constitutes uh, flight is, is a little bit of a red herring in that the real question before this court is whether in a motion to dismiss, and, and the defendant argues that this constitutes a variance, whether this evidence satisfied that it was facilitating the commission of a felony. And there's some cases that defendant points to that all come from the Court of Appeals that, that sort of indicate the, um, the fog that surrounds this issue. The defendant points to State v. Morris, um, which is a case that can be distinguished from this one in which and this might go to, to your question, Justice Irvin, where facts really support flight but don't really support the facilitation of the crime. Um, a young woman is, is sexually assaulted, raped, and is punched and, and wakes up to the sexual assault happening and then is punched again and wakes up essentially the next day in a shed next to a house. And the court there said um, that there really wasn't evidence to show that that, that, that the victim being in that shed was to facilitate the crime. I, I would argue to the court that that it still could be deemed facilitation of the crime, and that. Um, so you think that one was wrongly decided by the court of appeals? Then. Well, and it was it was affirmed by this court, but but I think it indicates sort of the 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 uncertainty surrounding this issue because following that decision, we we then have uh, State v. Holloway, which is an unpublished decision from the Court of Appeals, and, and I just bring this up not because it's binding on this court, but because um, it indicates that was a case in which um, a victim was shot in a car and was paralyzed, essentially falls on the floorboard, and um, the court in that, that said um, that essentially there was a variance argument much like there was here, and the court said that that still constitutes a, a, a kidnapping for the purposes of facilitating an armed robbery, even though the armed robbery took place earlier. 
Um, and so there's, there's certainly some, there's a lack of clarity in the appellate courts and in the court of appeals about this, but the one thing that is clear is every time this issue has come before this court, this court has found that there isn't this time limit that the court of appeals found in the case at bar on uh, a kidnapping that facilitating a crime, the crime doesn't have to necessarily uh, occur after the kidnapping. Um, and I think that's borne out uh, by the facts of this case, and as I've already sort of articulated, that um, this, this second act has to have some meaning. It's, it's a separate crime from the first act, and, and therefore that sort of leads me to the variance argument of the Be defendant. I, can I ask you a question uh, before you go there? Uh, the, I understand your argument that um, all the elements of the offense might be met before the offense is over. Um, but uh, under your theory, on these facts, when did the rape end? Sure, and um, I would say that the, the rape didn't end during the kidnapping. It's sort of interrupted by the second crime of the kidnapping. Um, this case also features a kidnapping before the rape, and so the logical question is when did that kidnapping occur or, or end? And, and I would say to the court that, that it doesn't end. It's, it's still ongoing, and then it's interrupted by this secondary criminal action, the secondary crime. Um, and it doesn't go into perpetuity, um, but it does extend to why the victim's living this horror and is tied up in a room. Um, that, is, that is certainly as she's sitting there wondering if the defendant has left the house as she hears the shower running, um, she doesn't know if he's here in the house. Um, I would say that, that that crime continues, but the, the first kidnapping, I would say, is interrupted by the, the second kidnapping. And so um, defendant argues in, in his brief that um, this information around the continuous transaction doctrine, which is something I also wanted to discuss, where um, if the state argues that there is this continuous transaction, that the crime doesn't end uh, immediately after the elements are, are finished, then the state has a problem, which is basically that these, these two kidnappings should merge together. Um, and the response to that is that um, in this case, the, there was a second action, a, section, a second actus reus, a second let me, kidnapping. Let me ask a follow-up about I'm having a little trouble wrapping my mind around your answer to Justice Earls' question. Sure. How could the first kidnapping have ended and this, there be a separate second one, but the rape have not ended, given the same sort of factual break in the circumstances? Sure. The... The first kidnapping was, the, the timing of these incidents, I want to make sure I'm perfectly clear about this, the timing of the incidents, there was the first kidnapping that was also for the facilitation of the rape. So the person's taken into, the victim's taken into a bedroom, and then the rape occurs there, in that bedroom. And, and um, hypothetically, there could be... And it ends at some point. The rape occurs, and then presumably it, it ends, and then there's this second movement of the victim. And that's sort of the answer to the continuous transaction argument for, by the defendant as well, is that there's two distinct movements. There's not, it's, it's not just a movement into the bedroom and that's where the rape occurred and then the defendant turns on the shower and leaves. The victim is moved into another bedroom and then moved, in, or moved into a closet and then moved into another bedroom and the shower is turned on. And so, and, so, and during that second movement of the victim, did any elements of the rape occur? They had all already been completed, hadn't they? I, I, yes, they had all been completed, Justice Hudson. The, the elements of the rape were essentially satisfied once the penetration had occurred. But, 
But again, I mean, it, presumably the there was other sort of a, there was another sort of sex offense where the um, defendant asked the victim to the defendant put his um, penis in the victim's mouth and um, she ended up biting him and there was argument over that and that that experience kept going and so like so the the rape the second that there was penetration the rape occurred but there was still the sexual activity of the penetration that kept going and and so to say that the the rape ended the second the penetration occurred uh, i think is inconsistent with um the precedent of this court and inconsistent with what the victim happened to the victim in this case and well that's not really what i'm asking i'm i'm, I'm just trying to figure out how the one Kidnapping can end to be followed by another, but the rape doesn't end, even though it seems like there's a similar break in the circumstances of what's occurring. Because and, and, uh, and, and when you were talking about it at the beginning, you indicated that it helped him to destroy evidence and get away with it, and that, that made it easier, but that would be um, supporting the offense if, it had, if he had been charged with purpose being flight. It would. And so again, there's that, that facilitation of flight might have significant overlap over the facilitation of the crime, but, um, but that wasn't what the indictment was for. Correct. Correct. But, but the evidence in this case still supports the facilitation of the rape, despite the rape having occurred earlier. And so uh, just to make sure that I have the timing correct and, and I don't want to misrepresent, um, something to the court. The, the first kidnapping occurs, there's the movement to the bedroom where the rape occurs. And so that, that movement to the bedroom from the kitchen, the defendant busting down the door and moving the victim into the bedroom, clearly that's for facilitating the crime, that's to put her in the bedroom. The second movement is after that rape has occurred, there's a second movement of that victim to the closet where she's tied up and then to the bedroom where she's sort of barricaded in and the defendant turns on the shower, um, presumably to keep her there. And that, that second movement of her to a bedroom, to a closet, and then to a bedroom, and, and the actions of that defendant, those are a separate crime in and of itself from the first kidnapping. And, and in, in case the court's worried, well, maybe the jury sort of merged those in their heads, the, in the record, the verdict form makes it very clear that the first first-degree kidnapping is, it, it says in parentheses, by moving the alleged victim from the kitchen to the bedroom, and then the second first degree kidnapping is by moving the alleged victim from the bedroom to bedroom to a closet. Um, and so there's no sort of merger issue there between the first kidnapping and the second first degree kidnapping because they're distinct, different actions. But although he has finished with the activity personally with her and the defendant is now in another room, the bathroom, turning on the shower, and the victim is in a different room, under your analysis, the rape is still being committed? The, the timing of the rape, and I, the, when the rape actually ends, um, I think that the defendant, it depends what question is sort of being asked. If, you're, if we're asking like for purposes of flight, then for the rape, then I think the defendant was still fleeing his criminal activity for the rape. But, but the question I think before this court isn't when the rape ends necessarily, or I'm sorry, it's, it's when, the, when the kidnapping for facilitating that crime, when, when the time period should be um, for those crimes to sort of separate. And so I think there's significant layers here where the rape is still ongoing because the defendant has finished with the victim and is now committing a new crime. 
And so for, for purposes of, of what we're here for in evaluating the second first degree rape, there's, there's significant overlap. And so in, in whether the rape ends immediately after the defendant finishes the sexual activity or whether the rape ends immediately when um, the defendant gets home and things go back to status quo or the defendant flees, um, I don't think that's, that's really the question before the court. The question before this court is whether the, the kidnapping that's facilitating the rape, the second one, whether, that, uh, whether you can do that after the rape. And this court has said clearly, yes, that that's always been the law in this state, that you can facilitate something even after you did it. And, and perhaps burglary would be an, an illustrative, um, illustrative um, example of this, where somebody walks through the door of a house, you've committed the burglary at that point, but you've done it for some felonious intent, and that might be to steal things, or it might be to commit a physical assault. And just because you've hit all the elements doesn't mean that you've still got to demonstrate that felonious intent. And so the evidence that happens after the person walks through the door is still has bearing on whether the burglary was, was committed and whether the elements were satisfied. Same thing here with the first degree kidnapping. The rape has already occurred, but the actions of the defendant are facilitating that rape later on. And so, um, and there's cases that, that sort of speak to this. Well, in your burglary example, if, it, if he's still in the house that he broke into, the burglary is ongoing, correct? Correct, correct. So that's, that seems different from what we have here. Well, and, and perhaps Justice Hudson, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that the element, the burglary is still going on, but the elements have been met at that point. So that's an example of how, despite the fact that the elements have been met, the burglary is still ongoing. And so, um, and that, that, that's the point here, is that even though the, the elements have been met, the kidnapping is, is still for facilitating that rape because, um, because you're making that rape easier. You're making, making um, the commission of the crime easier by destroying evidence and um, barricading the victim, which, which is really to prevent the victim from fleeing and not preventing the defendant well, from fleeing. Would, would you agree that in all likelihood, had he been indicted on the second kidnapping for the purpose of flight, we likely wouldn't be talking about this? I, I, I think there's ubiquitous evidence of the, the, the second kidnapping was for flight, and I think there's ubiquitous evidence that the second kidnapping was for facilitating the rape. And, and again, just because there's this, um, this overlap, doesn't, I would argue, doesn't bar the state from being able to prove that question. And so just because there is this, and defendant argues that there's a variance, that, that the evidence in the case doesn't support the reason that it's indicted for. And that, again, is using that sort of, the fact that there's flight in the statute as well to sort of mar the, the fact that there is evidence in this case of facilitating the rape. And that would be the facilitation of the, the rape that occurred by barricading the victim, by turning on the shower and, and, and the mechanism. And, and I should mention that following the rape, this defendant actually stole, this 80-year-old this victim had like $5 bills that she had gotten from the, the bank to, um, to send to kids and their birthday cards, and so that money was taken. There are other things that are happening while the defendant is committing the, the kidnapping and that's, that's, that's occurring inside the house. And so it's not like this defendant finishes a rape, puts the victim in one room, and then, and then leaves. There's, there's other things that are occurring that um, support that it was for facilitating the commission of this crime. Counsel, you're well within your rebuttal time. Thank you, Your Honor. I reserve the balance. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. 
Thank you. May it please the court. Uh, I'm Kirby Smith. I represent the appellee, Michael Stephen Elder. Uh, the appellee contends the law in this case is settled, that a kidnapping charge that arises in the course of a rape cannot stand when there's a variance between the allegations in the indictment and the evidence offered at trial. This principle was first stated in the Faircloth case from this court in 1979, um, and it's been followed by this court numerous times. That's prior to the Hall case, which is relied on by the state. The, the facts of this case are fairly straightforward, and I know we've discussed it to some degree, but I appreciate if you indulge me. Um, Mr. Elder was charged with numerous charges, but three that are important today. First-degree rape, he was charged with one count of first-degree kidnapping, and the indictment alleged that Mr. Elder moved A.H., that's the victim, from the kitchen to the back bedroom for the purpose of facilitating the commission of a felony, first-degree rape. The second kidnapping indictment alleged that Mr. Elder moved A.H., the victim again, from the back bedroom to another bedroom and put her into a closet, again, for the purpose of facilitating the commission of a felony, first-degree rape. Now, as this court has said many times, it's well settled that if a defendant's to be convicted, it must be on the allegations contained in the indictment. Um, Mr. Elder appealed his conviction. At the Court of Appeals, he argued that the trial court should have dismissed the second count of kidnapping due to a fatal variance. Mr. Elder argued that the rape had been completed prior to the second kidnapping occurring, and therefore the second kidnapping could not have facilitated the rape. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the Court of Appeals agreed relying on the Morris case, which was affirmed by this court, there was a dissent. The dissent argued that Morris, the controlling authority according to the majority on the Court of Appeal, did not apply, and I should say Morris relied on the Faircloth case. The dissent argued that Hall was the correct standard and that the crime of rape was an ongoing criminal act. The state filed notice of appeal based on the dissent and that's why we're here today. The issue before this court, I think, is really simple. Can a kidnapping facilitate a rape that's already been completed? Um, so let's, let's, let, um, yes, sir. let's talk a little bit about <laughs> the state of the jurisprudence. Um, it, certainly, there was Faircloth, and then there was Hall. Yes, sir. Uh, the majority in Hall didn't really say we're overruling Faircloth, but the dissent in Hall says, for all intents and purposes, Faircloth is being overruled. Then you had uh, Kyle that built on Hall that says the crime can be complete, all the elements of the crime have taken place and still not be completed when it comes to the idea of facilitating. Uh, and then we have Diaz that overruled a portion of Hall, which appears to, uh, and I've just got to read this because it's fascinating to me that in 1982 in Hall, uh, we said a disjunctive jury instruction. Uh, we, we called that, uh, uh, hence defendants ingenious argument that the submission of two offenses of armed robbery deprived him of his right to an 
a unanimous verdict and to due process. We find the assignment imaginative, but wholly unpersuasive, 7-0-1982. And then you get to Diaz, 7-0, uh, was it 7-0? Anyway, uh, 1986, and not only is that imaginative argument uh, not unpersuasive, but it persuades the court. So, and then, we, and then, of course, we get to Morris that seems to rely on Faircloth. Um, what, what, in your view, is the controlling case law here? I am so glad you asked that question because I think if you look... You at find the, a question there. Good. <laughs> well, if you look at the, the timeline, Faircloth was very similar to this case. Mr. Faircloth was accused of abducting a woman out of New Hanover County Hospital uh, at gunpoint, taking her car, taking her out by the port where he raped her. He left her there. He was indicted for kidnapping in that case to facilitate flight from the commission of the felony. And this court ruled that was a fatal variance between the allegations in the indictment and the evidence at trial. That was by Justice Britt. For a unanimous court, he said all the evidence indicated that the kidnapping in Faircloth was to facilitate the commission of the rape, not the flight. In fact, Justice Britt went so far as to say, uh, Justice Hudson, and, and to your point, if the state had indicted him for flight, this court would have upheld his conviction. We then have the Hall case. Hall comes along, and that's not a unanimous decision. Uh, I don't remember the justice who wrote it, but I think it was Justice Hudgens. But Justice, I'm losing my train of thought, excuse me. It was. Um, yeah, it was 4 3, and Britt actually wrote the dissent. Dissent, yeah. Uh, Britt wrote the dissent, and he said, I can't reconcile this court's decision with Faircloth with the decision here in Hall. And he says, I would have found the fatal variance in Hall. And he's joined by Chief Justice Branch and Justice Exum. So we've got a 4-3 decision. I think the timeline, I, one of us has got it wrong. I think Diaz comes next in 1986. Diaz is really a weird case. It's a drug trafficking case out of Hyde County. Mr. Diaz is convicted of trafficking marijuana by possession and transportation. This court said you can't do that. 9095 creates four grounds upon which a person can be convicted of trafficking drugs, and the state must identify which purpose it's pursuing. And that disjunctive instruction was not allowed to hold. But what's interesting in Diaz is Chief Justice Branch, one of the dissenters in Hall, wrote, this court explicitly overrules its decision in Hall to the extent it conflicts, it's inconsistent with the decision in Hall. I'm sorry. And so what does that mean? I, I'm trying to wrap my head around that, Justice well, Irvin. So, so was I, which is why I ask. What I tell you is, um, Mr. Zellinger's right. The kidnapping statute 14-39A creates 10 grounds upon which a person can be charged with kidnapping in six subsections. 9095, the trafficking statute, creates four grounds upon which a person can be charged with trafficking drugs. Now, I read Diaz as saying, look, if you're going to charge someone with kidnapping, you've got to identify the purpose and prove it. We're not going to let you prove other grounds that aren't alleged. Now, no, there, there, were, there were two armed robberies. Yeah, and, two and, armed robberies in Diaz, and the court simply said, we don't know for which uh, the conviction is. Is it for taking it from the person 
or is it taking it from the property? And I, and so I, it was simply the disjunctive. Uh, uh, I understand, but it, I understand that, Chief Justice Newby, but my problem is I, I can't get Diaz. I don't see how Diaz applies to Hall. And well, Hall specifically, and I, I just read it to you, it says a disrupt that uh, in Hall uh, there was a disjunctive, um, let's see, with respect to the crime of armed robbery, the trial judge instructed the jury that if two or more persons act together with a common intent to commit a robbery with a firearm, then each is responsible for the acts of the other done in the commission of the robbery. The trial judge then instructed the jury, state must prove that the defendant individually or acting together with another took property from the person of Thomas Thompson or in his presence. So the person or presence, that was the disjunctive. And we, we in Hall, the court said, well, we find that to be uh, 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 ingenious uh, imaginative, but unpersuasive. And then in Diaz, we said, well, we find it persuasive. Yes, but also in Hall, this the state alleged that the kidnapping was for the purpose, I believe I got this correct, of facilitating the commission of the, of the crime. Yeah, now, but that, that, but, that wasn't the part with the disjunctive but, instruction. But the court said it really doesn't matter because there are these other other grounds upon which the kidnapping could be found under 90 dash, uh, I'm sorry, 14 dash 39. Um, I'd like to, if you'll excuse me, Chief Justice Newby, I'd like to move on to Kyle because I think Kyle's important too. When you look at the Kyle case, it is a home invasion case where Mr. Kyle went into his ex-wife's apartment, shot her, and then took her and her son from the apartment. Mr. Kyle was charged with two counts of kidnapping, one for each, one for his ex-wife, one for her son. The kidnapping charge for the wife was for the purpose of facilitating murder and burglary. And the evidence was his wife did not die in the apartment, but rather died in the state of Virginia. The second count of kidnapping was for facilitating <coughs> flight. So what we see in Kyle is a person, Mr. Kyle, being charged with two counts of kidnapping for two victims and, <coughs> excuse me, um, with respect to the ex-wife, the state alleges two grounds to facilitate the commission of murder and to facilitate uh, burglary. That's unique from the trafficking statutes, which you generally have to indict just one. You're allowed to indict one, but here, our courts have allowed uh, someone to be charged with kidnapping for multiple grounds, but they must be alleged. That's how I read the Kyle case, and I think it's distinguishable as from what the state's arguing. The Morris case is the next case, and in Morris, it comes before the Court of Appeals. Mr. Morris induced a classmate into his apartment after school. He attacked her, knocked her out. She came to the next day in a storage closet outside Mr. Morris's apartment. She realized she had been raped. Mr. Morris was charged with rape and kidnapping. The kidnapping was for the purposes of facilitating the rape. Uh, Mr. Morris was convicted. The Court of Appeals said, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me. Mr. Morris said there was a fatal variance in the evidence. 
that all evidence indicated that the kidnapping occurred after the rape. The state in Morris argued the continuous transaction rule. They actually called it by name in that case and said that the rape was part of a continuous transaction. So we're hearing that argument for the first time in Morris. The Court of Appeals disagreed. The Court of Appeals relied on the Faircloth case to say all the evidence showed the kidnapping <coughs> occurred after the rape and therefore the kidnapping could not have facilitated the commission of the rape. It was a fatal variance and the Court of Appeals ordered the kidnapping charge in Morris to be reversed. Now there was a dissent in Morris. The dissent argued that Hall was the correct standard, not Faircloth. And in fact, if you look at the dissent in this case and compare it to the dissent in Morris, they're remarkably similar. Uh, they use a lot of the same language from Hall. Um, and, Hall and the dissent in Morris said, the fact that all the essential elements of the crime have arisen does not mean the crime is no longer being committed. Well, the state appealed the Court of Appeals decision, Morris, to this court. In a per curiam decision, this court affirmed the Court of Appeals. Now, I had to look it up, but per curiam decisions are where there's no opinion. And that's generally held to mean the issue is controlled by previous decisions, and this court deems it not necessary or worthy to have to file a detailed ex opinion explaining why it ruled the way it did. But most notably, a per curiam opinion carries the full weight of authority. It's as if this court entered a full opinion. I and was going to ask you about that. Would it be your um, argument that the Court of Appeals was actually bound by the per curiam Supreme Court decision in Morris? Well, the, in, in this case, right. they certainly did, thought they were. The Court of Appeals in their decision cites um, Morris as the controlling authority, and in footnote five, I believe it is, says uh, the Supreme Court of, of this state approves that decision in this per curiam opinion. Well, the so, facts in Morris are very similar. They're very similar, yes, ma'am. Um, so what Morris tells us a couple of things. Number one, the Morris case tells us this court adopted the rationale of the majority at the Court of Appeals, meaning the correct standard is fair cloth, not hall, when evaluating rape, uh, kidnapping cases that occur during a rape. And second, it rejects the dissent's reliance on hall. And that's significant because the dissent in the present case relies on hall. Um, it's also interesting to note that uh, neither this court nor the Court of Appeals uh, extended the continuous transaction doctrine to cases involving kidnapping and rape. It's worth noting um, the continuous transaction doctrine has been limited by this court to basis cases involving murder that involve arson, um, rape, armed robbery, burglary, and the like. Uh, there is no case that I've been able to find where our courts have extended the continuous transaction doctrine to cases involving rape and kidnapping. Um, <clears throat> the next case I'd like to point out is the Jordan case. Now this is a court of appeal case. Jordan, um, I call it the accidental home invasion case. Jordan and some friends kicked in an apartment door with the intent to rob it, went in, put everyone on the floor and realized they were in the wrong apartment and left. Jordan was charged and convicted for burglary and kidnapping. Uh, on appeal, Jordan argued that the burglary was completed, and I think 
someone asked about burglary as a possible crime. Um, Jordan argued that burglary is complete the moment you enter the door and that the kidnapping could not have facilitated the burglary. Burglary, excuse me. The Court of Appeals agreed. The Court of Appeals held there was a fatal variance between the allegations in the indictment and the evidence offered at trial and that this evidence could not support Jordan's conviction for second-degree second kidnapping. Excuse me. The Court of Appeals went so far as to say it would constitute plain error to allow Jordan to be uh, convicted of kidnapping under these facts. Now, I bring up Jordan because there was no dissent there, but the state did file a petition for discretionary review with this court. Um, that petition was denied, and in all candor, uh, the denial of a petition for discretionary review is not controlling authority. However, it uh, does indicate it's some indication, I should say, that this court believes that no harm will come from the Jordan case. So what, is, what does this tell us? That's the history, Chief Justice Newby, as I understand it. Um, the Court of Appeals followed the Morris case as controlling authority. The Court of Appeals believed it was controlling authority because this court had approved of it in a per curiam decision. And the Morris case relied on the Faircloth decision. Um, whereas there's some, con Hall, there's some controversy about the status of Hall, um, no one's ever attacked, as best I can tell, Faircloth's legitimacy as controlling authority. Um, I cannot find a case where the Hall case has been upheld under has been upheld on appeal under similar circumstances. Um, Mr. Elder respectfully contends that once a crime is committed, it's complete and it can't be subsequently facilitated after the fact. And the Court of Appeals agreed, quoting Morris, said, while there's little question the defendant's actions made his flight from the scene easier and was an attempt to cover up his act, the removal of a victim to the storage closet in no way made the defendant's rape of her any easier as all of the elements of rape were completed before the removal. Um, but we do have language in Kyle that is... In which case, I'm sorry? Kyle. We yes. do have language uh, quoting with approval Hall. Yes, sir. Saying that just because a crime is complete in other words, the elements of the crime uh, have been uh, done. That does not mean that it is completed. Uh, yes, that sir. certainly appears to be good law that we need to take into account, correct? Certainly, Kyle should be considered, but I think it's distinguishable because we have two kidnappings. Uh, the kidnapping of Mrs. Kyle was for two purposes, to facilitate murder and burglary. And this court, I believe, found, if I'm remembering correctly, that this court found there was no fatal variance, first and foremost. The evidence showed Mrs. Kyle had been shot in her apartment, but didn't die. Uh, she was removed from her apartment, her husband and her ex-husband, I should say, and then took Ms. Kyle and her son and drove them to the state of Virginia where Mrs. Kyle was unfortunately. It's distinguishable on those facts, 
Chief Justice Newby. Yeah, it says the defendant and Kyle argued that burglary was complete upon entry into the home house and that the kidnapping could not facilitate the crime. We disagree in State versus Hall, the rules <coughs> on other grounds, mentions Diaz, defendant argued pretty much the same thing. So uh, the complete but not completed theoretically still seems to be a part of our case law. And I'm, I'm not going to disagree with that. I think there's certainly some room here for clarity, if that's the best way to put it. Um, but I, I want to go back to a question that was asked earlier. Um, I think what the state's asking this court to do indirectly is merge the two purposes in 1439A2. That makes it a crime to kidnap someone for the purposes of committing a crime and to kidnap someone for the purposes of facilitating flight from the commission of a crime. Our legislature found 10 grounds upon which a person can be charged with kidnapping. And they're contained in the six subsections of 1439A. And what the state's trying to do is to say, expand the definition of the commission of a crime is so great, it's going to envelop flight from a crime and essentially merge those two prongs together. So we wouldn't have 10 anymore, we'd have nine. Now, I respectfully contend that's the responsibility of the legislature if we're gonna merge parts of the statute together. But you know, it's gonna be difficult to imagine where a person could be charged with kidnapping to facilitate flight and it's not facilitating, facilitating the commission of the crime as well. As I listen to you talk about the, yeah, as I hear you talking about the, the, the litany of cases and, and the crimes that have been involved in them, uh, it would appear as though in looking at rape as compared to some of the other crimes at issue in those other cases, uh, and you talked about the murder, arson, burglary, it sounds like rape may be different from those when it comes to looking at that phraseology that a crime can be complete but not completed. Would you distinguish rape from the others that have been addressed in these other cases as perhaps being uh, a crime that is not as given to the aspect of being uh, complete but not completed as compared to perhaps a crime that is simultaneously completed when it's complete? Um, I think I understand your question, uh, Justice Morgan. I, I would not. I think rape should be treated just like any other crime. I don't see any reason why rape should be treated any differently from arson or murder or burglary. Um, I think, um, <clears throat> give me a second look. Um, it, it sounds like perhaps you're candidly agreeing then with uh, Mr. Zellinger's assessment then. How so? I'm sorry. Well, uh, from the standpoint of what I thought I heard you saying, which is when you were talking about the continuous transaction theory, that rape did not necessarily comport with murder, arson, burglary, and the, and the cases show that. But on the other hand, if you feel like rape should be treated the same as these others, then perhaps you're candidly admitting that the com complete but not completed uh, theory that Mr. Zellinger is putting forward for the state 
uh, is one worthy of consideration. Well, under the continuous transaction rule, this court has limited it to only murder cases. Murder cases where arson, burglary, rape um, have, have occurred within a close proximity in time. So, no, I don't believe the continuous transaction doctrine is applicable in this case because there's no murder here. This court has not extended it to that point. Um, well, didn't it, to the extent that we treat Morris as um, a decision of this court, in that, as I think you put it, we adopted the Court of Appeals' rationale. Yes, ma'am. There, um, the holding is specifically that our courts have not applied continuous transaction doctrine to cases involving rape and kidnapping. That's and correct. that where the elements of the rape were completed, that that was done and you couldn't, you couldn't facilitate the, kid, the kidnapping couldn't facilitate the rape there because the rape had been completed. Exactly. So would we, ha we would have to overrule that in order to um, go the way that Mr. Zellinger suggests, wouldn't we? Yes. I, well, I think, I, I'm sorry, I may, be getting, I may not understand your question. Uh, I think to, to find for the state, you're going to have to extend the continuous transaction doctrine. Is that? Is that right, which would mean either disavowing or overruling Morris. Exactly. Yes, ma'am. Okay, uh, I mean, what's really interesting and, and was touched on by this panel earlier is the state wants to say the rape didn't end, that all these actions afterwards uh, continued the rape. But the problem is the state wants the kidnapping to end. It wants it to end when? When the rape is committed. Um, but we've got, this is a unique case. Um, in that Mr. Elder is charged with two counts of kidnapping, the same person for the same reason. And we have two separate movements. But the state wants to say this one rape is facilitated by both. I don't think the state can have its cake and eat it too. If the rape is ongoing, then the kidnapping, the first kidnapping should be ongoing too. The first kidnapping should be completed when the rape is completed. The state has not stood before this court today and told you why the first kidnapping ended, but the rape did not. And I can't find a case where, in this state, where a person's been charged with two counts of kidnapping the same person for the same reason in basically the same transaction. Um, this is uh, unique, I believe. But, but I, I want to just make sure I'm clear. I, I thought I understood your brief to be saying that if, and this is part of your variance argument, but if the, this defendant in these circumstances had been charged with one count of kidnapping to facilitate the rape and a second count of kidnapping to facilitate flight, that you wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. There wouldn't be a problem. Uh, pro yeah, we're talking about probabilities, but yes, ma'am. I, I certainly believe that's correct. I would go back. To, Chief, to Justice Britt in the Faircloth case when he said um, if the state had indicted uh, Mr. Faircloth with kidnapping that person from the hospital for the purpose of facilitating the commission of rape, we would have upheld the conviction. But you asked us to uphold a conviction that's not supported by the evidence because it's incumbent on the state to charge a, a defendant with a crime and to allege what evidence they're going to prove. And if the state fails to meet that burden, then that's a fatal variance and the crime cannot stand. Um, 
Council, <clears throat> sorry, I, I know your time is running short and I uh, apologize, but if, if the rape was completed, um, what, if anything, do we make of the movement from bedroom to bedroom following the completion of the rape? Well, if, if we say the rape was completed, then I would say it was a Scribner's error by the state when it charged in the second indictment the purpose of that movement was to facilitate the commission of the rape. If that said to facilitate flight from the rape, uh, as Justice Earl said, I, I would probably not be here today. And, and I, I apologize. What, is, is there a separate offense for which the movement would, uh, uh, could have been indicted? Sure. Um, if we're going to extend rape uh, to say it's ongoing, the question is going to become when does it end? Um, you know, we, a person can be charged with obstruction of justice, uh, destroying evidence. Those crimes will probably be eliminated um, if you extend rape to say um, the rape is ongoing. I mean, when, when does it end? If a person realizes he's raped someone and a year after the fact realizes, wait, I've got a shirt with some evidence on it, he destroys the, destroys the shirt. Is that a continuation of the rape? Under the state's theory, it would because it's going to make the case harder to prove. But I would contend the rape ends when all the elements are met and there are other crimes that can fill that bill. Um, I'd like to conclude just by saying I, I don't believe there's really any conflict in our law. I believe this matter was settled in the Morris case. Um, Morris, by the way, came after the, this court's decision in Kyle. I believe the Court of Appeals correctly followed the law when it reversed Mr. Elder's conviction for, on the second count of kidnapping due to a fatal variance between the indictment and the evidence proven at trial. And I would ask this court to affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals and reverse and allow Mr. Elder's second conviction for kidnapping to be reversed. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you. Um, I wanted to address the, the sort of desire for a bright line rule in this kidnapping statute that facilitation of the crime needs to come before and facilitating flight needs to come after. There's a myriad of factual patterns that wouldn't fit neatly into this before or after rubric that the defendant suggests. For instance, gloves. If, if a defendant wears gloves, that's something that's happening before the crime, presumably, and, and that's really being done to conceivably support flight of the crime, but also make the, the commission of the crime easier. I also want to address the, the, the sort of common sense approach to, to when these crimes end. Um, if it's when the elements are satisfied, then the second there's penetration or rape, that crime is over. And that's wholly inconsistent with what the victim's living through. Same thing with a burglary. The second somebody enters the door, to call that the end of the crime is totally inconsistent with a person who now has an aggressor inside their house with some felonious intent. And then lastly, I want to point out to the court that... Let me just ask you real quick. Would you, would you agree with the defendant that um, in order to um, agree with you, we would have to either disavow or overrule Morris, which specifically says we're not applying that rule in a rape and kidnapping situation that where the elements of the rape were completed, um, that before the, the victim was removed, then you can't do a second kid, you can't do a kidnapping to facilitate the rape. Sure, I, I, there's a, the, 
case law on this is, is a little bit mixed in that after Morris, the Court of Appeal didn't follow Morris at all in State v. Holloway, which is an unpublished opinion. So well, I think that Morris right, is a- Morris, as, as a piece, as a, an affirmed by this court, would be treated as authority from this court. I, I, I think that Morris is a limited um, opinion that uh, should not be followed by the court. I don't think it's binding on the court because of how limited the facts for which it uh, was evaluated. It doesn't really differ from this case, though, at all. Back it does. It does in that the victim's unconscious. And that kind of brings me to, to my point about arson and the continuous do uh, uh, doctrine, continuous um, transaction doctrine, is that in arson and murder, the victim's dead. And even after that, if you set a house on fire, you're still held liable for arson, even though the victim's already dead. And so um, that's a perfect example of how transactions continue, which has also been applied also to larceny. Thank you, Thank you. counsel. Thank you both, counsel. Mr. Clark. All rise. I thought they like took the time off the clock. And so I was like, oh, there's two and a half minutes left. Oh, that was my rebuttal time. <laughs>